everybody and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. My name is Amelia Helton. I'll be one of your co-hosts for today. Welcome to our Pitchfest 2021 series where we chat to the founders behind these incredible startups. But I'm joined today by my co-host, the man with a mission, Tim Silverwood. Hi, Tim. Hi, Amelia. Gee, this was a fascinating episode, this one. I'm really enjoying this series and it just reminds us of how powerful the Pitchfest campaign is in shining a light on incredible innovators and entrepreneurs doing amazing things for Planet Ocean. So true, Tim, and I think that that's probably a good little segue to just mention to everyone that pre-registration is officially open for Pitchfest 2022 and it's it's going to be back and bigger than ever. So people can, in fact, go and uh, pre, pre-register and get the scoop uh, for what is going to be probably our best yet pitch fest. Yeah, can't wait. It's a really good opportunity just to express your interest now, get your details down so you're the first to know when the big news arrives on the prizes, the new award categories, the new partners, and of course, those key dates for Pitchfest 2022. It's such exciting stuff. And and as we mentioned, we do have um, one of these incredible founders. It's Adam Root from Matter. Um, Matter are a microplastic technology company focusing on the capture, harvest and eventually recycling of microplastics. And they stop microplastics from ever entering the waterways by capturing microfiber shedding from synthetic textiles, which, by the way, at home, 700,000 microfibers are released into the ocean after every machine wash. That's just in the home. So Matter are doing a really great job at creating solutions for both the home, for business, um, and also for industry, all of the places where, you know, microfiber shedding is an issue. Um, Tim, he's just such a, a fascinating guy, you know, an engineer, and I loved this conversation and learning about how he kind of worked through his his solution. Oh, man, I love this one. I mean, you could probably tell if you're listening to all these episodes, the ones that really trigger me to go deep and challenge the guest. And on this occasion, I just had to because I've obviously been working in the plastic pollution space for 15 years. And we haven't really had anyone who's been quite the pioneer of new technology and new approaches to address microfibers and micro pollutants like we have Adam Root and the, the work that he's doing. We didn't mention in the podcast, this guy used to work directly with um, with Dyson, James Dyson directly. He was one of a team of engineers, mechanical engineers working at Dyson. He's had a very distinguished career, this chap, but just felt this enormous call to action to do something about this emerging problem when he realized how widespread microfiber pollution, microplastic fibers were in the ocean. What really shocked me, there's so many things that took took my breath away in this one, but you know, when he was talking about the sewage systems and that naturally you collect these gigantic amounts of sludge at the end of the sewage treatment process, they can just be deployed onto farmland, yet they contain the most ginormous levels of plastic pollution, microplastic pollution, let alone the chemicals and drugs and medicines and it's just like oh my god how backward are we as a species that we just allow this to happen blindly so I found this episode so fascinating yeah there was so many takeaways and 
You know, Adam is exactly the kind of person who I think of when we talk about innovation at OIO and and making uh, your imagination or your ideas a reality. Now, obviously, he's an engineer and, yes, he was a senior designer at Dyson, but ultimately he was able to work through and realise his idea with a grant of £250 and some materials from Prince's Trust. Uh, plus his dead washing machine, which also came into it. And he does talk about this story. Um, You know, point being, you don't always need a lot. And sometimes innovation is about being scrappy, but purposeful. And, uh, and that was a huge one for me is that, you know, if he can do it with 250 pounds and some materials and a dead washing machine, you know, there's nothing stopping anyone from testing their ideas, you know, and making them a reality. Yeah, look, I I think that's a really good point, um, Amelia. And, you know, maybe some people are of the impression listening to these episodes or looking at that startup that gets recognised in Pitchfest as being so impossible to achieve that. You just got to listen to Adam's story and how raw and how tough he and his wife had to do it whilst they were building this business. He does open up and I, I find those nuggets are so valuable if you're a founder or if you're thinking about being one. So, yeah, I'd listen to this one twice if I was a founder because you're going to find there's going to be some really good nuggets in there. 100%. So everyone, you know, enjoy this episode. Let us know your thoughts as always. You can leave a review or a comment. You know, make sure you're checking it out on YouTube if you want to be able to actually see the conversation. Um, and don't forget that you can pre-register now for Pitchfest 2022. Um, the URL for that is ocean-impact.org forward slash Pitchfest 2022. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I'm really excited to have on the Ocean Impact podcast, Pitchfest 2021 series, Adam Root, who is the founder and CEO of Matter. How are you today, Adam? Hey, good morning. Um, uh, lovely to see you guys. It's uh, it's nice. If you're watching this video, uh, Adam's our fresco in a very sunny morning in, in Bristol and the sun has just gone down where I am in Byron Bay in northern New South Wales, Australia. But we're, we're here to talk about the incredible work that you and your team are doing to address the major ocean challenges. So why don't we go straight to it, Adam? Tell us a little bit about the, the problem that it is you're trying to solve and, and how you're doing it. Yeah, sure. Um, I think... Uh... Fundamentally, um, so I, I founded Matter, um, which is a microplastic technology company. So we focus on the capture, harvest, and recycling of microplastics. Um, microplastics is one of the most prolific sources of pollution on the planet, but people know very little about it or the effects. Um, but I think most people understand that our oceans are super important to um, effectively be the life support system of, of planet Earth. They produce uh, a huge amount of our oxygen, up to 80% of the oxygen um, in our air. It sequests more carbon and all the trees and earth compliant. Um, so for us, um, what we're doing is removing some of the tiniest little particles which are entering at the bottom of the food chain. Things like phytoplankton and zooplankton are eating um, small, ingesting small pieces of plastics. Um, and there's uh, a mixture between some of the chemicals that are involved in the production of those plastics as well as how they combine with um, with other parts that's going inside the animal and the organism um, uh, and causing uh, detriment and harm throughout the whole food chain so um, we're working on that <laughs> um, that's that's really a, that's really a big part of what we do 
Yeah, and not just in those creatures out there in the environment, of course, in us through what we breathe and what we drink and what we eat. So it is a diabolical problem. Let's go back a little bit, I suppose, to when you had your aha moment or your call to action. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing and and how matter came to be. Yeah, sure. Um, so I suppose it's probably from the beginning why it's probably worth explaining a little bit about my background as well. Um, just it kind of put a bit in context. So um, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. Um, I've worked for some of the biggest companies in the world, um, specializing in, I worked for GE doing big industrial projects. Um, and I used to work for Dyson doing uh, new product development and new product innovation. And I was getting to the stage where I really um, was making quite big impact in the companies I worked in and um, and decided that I think looking at producing, I never really worked on anything less than like a million units a year when I was working for Dyson. So high volume production, high volume products. And I really wanted to make a, a big impact um, and was looking particularly at oceans. And um, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a keen scuba diver and I think... There's a lot of stuff happening in the ocean plastic space that I was seeing happening. It's in international waters. It's very difficult to kind of work in those spaces. And I figured that, you know, I've got some good skill set and I wanted to use my superpowers for good, if you like. Um, and really, I just sat down with a blank sheet of paper and was like, OK, so where are all the big pollution sources? What do they look like? Where are they coming from? Um, and then from that, I'm, um, I started identifying the major sources of pollution. Um, what does that look like and for me it was really based on the numbers so synthetic textiles is the number one polluter um uh, by by number of particles entering the ocean and i was like well that's got to be where i start so um that was really the foundational piece for me was was really about understanding the numbers focus on the impact that you can have and and then um you know there's a you got I got a small amount of resource and time and apply that to to have the biggest impact possible um, and that was really what we were looking at. It's fascinating. I can just imagine you doing that exercise and doing a bit of a scientific review and analysis and then finding out that textiles were so dramatic. I mean, I've been in the plastic pollution space since about 2007 2008 and I still remember that revelation that came out when five gyres were doing their research and coming up with those giant figures of 5.25 trillion pieces of plastic floating in that upper level of the water column. And then when the science started coming out around the the benthic layers and what was happening with fibres and there was people were scratching their heads. So, yeah, what did you do once you found out the figures on those synthetic textiles and obviously using your design skills and your experience where did it sort of send you in terms of how you could actually start to create something which could contribute to being part of the solution sure um so i suppose um i was at that time i was unemployed you know i didn't have a lot of money i don't come from money as a as as somebody so like relatively limited resources really um um i was the intention was me and my wife were going to take a bit of time out and we were going to cycle from norway to italy and we got a couple of weeks in and broke some bones ended up coming back and um so basically we were we were at that stage where we were like had very little resources um i was living at becky's mum and dad's parents house and and we were like okay well you know you've got these big ideas and how are you going to turn them into reality um 
so the, uh, the first thing I was doing was kind of when I came back and I was, um, I went on the, uh, princess, the princess trust, um, um, it was a charity based in the UK and they specifically help young people between 18 and 30. And I was on a five day business course for them. And that was my, my only training really for this. Um, and, um, you get at the end of that, you get up to 125 pounds, um, to what they call a will it work grant. So it's a little bit of money for like people who are, um, <laughs> who are like trying to start, you know, if you're trying to start a hairdressers or a salon or something like that, where you get, you know, some money for some leaflets to try your idea out and see if it works. And, um, so I pitched into them guys for 250 pounds. So it was double the amount that I was supposed to ask for. And I asked for some materials to basically build a rig to capture microplastics from washing machines. Um, that was because of the pollution sources. That was because I looked at those places and I had this concept and this idea that I thought that you could use, um, you could use some technology that I was kind of playing around with the idea of, of, of basically looking at microfiltration, but without disposable parts. And that was really what I was looking at. Cause I think the first thing I noticed is that there's loads of filtration mechanisms on the planet currently exist. You know, most membranes and cell regular stuff, um, which I, I kind of knew about, but all of those ultra filtration systems that are capable of capturing micro pollutants are disposable. So if you're going to capture micro pollution, and you're going to use disposables to do it, you're going to generate more waste than you than you save. So it was really, really obvious um, right from the beginning that you, if you want to do something positive, you've got to do it that way. Um, so I got the grant, I got the money, and um, I basically cut up a, uh, I had an old washing machine that mysteriously died um, um, in the house. And um, so I started disassembling that. I cut up a couple of buckets and, basically proved um that you could capture microplastics um uh from this little technique that i was kind of working on my first rig was a, literally a couple of buckets and some plastic tubes and um from that i um i knew that there was something there um and that's where that's where things really started coming on for me that was when i was like okay you know how far am i going to take this through so it was never really about the business it was never really about you know um looking at market sizes or anything like that it was more the fact of like here's a problem. I think I can solve it. What does that look like? You know, is it possible? Um, so I think that's really where I started. So fascinating, Adam. And the people that listen to this podcast are diverse, but obviously OIO works with companies all the way through from being non-existent and just a, an idea in someone's notepad right the way through to scale up. So I, I would love to just hear a little bit more about that journey that you went through in turning your piece of paper to going and doing a five-day course to getting that 250 pound very small grant like what were some of the lessons or what's some advice you can give to people out there about if they're at that stage they've got a desperate burning desire to want to do something but they just don't quite know how to get started like give us a little bit more sense of what that part of your journey was like please sort of like you know we get a lot of we run like ideation programs and everything. So I think that little part of your journey will be something that people will find really fascinating. So just, you know, like things like how did you sustain yourself? Like how, how did you know you were on the right track? I just go a little bit deeper through that part of your journey, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, so this is, this is, um, this is, I suppose there's a few things in here. I mean, there's a, there's some really sensible ways of starting businesses and there's some really not sensible ways of starting businesses. 
you know lots of people go in it softly and they keep their current job and you know they try it in the evenings or weekends and they talk about this idea of a side hustle that um that is a great way of doing it like softly and and to go for this way at that point in my life i'd quit my job my wife quit her job we had some savings that we were basically that we saved on for uh, we you know had a couple of thousand pounds that we were going to get us through the first couple of months of, of cycle touring and then we were going to look for jobs and maybe like au pair or you know dog sit or do some things we were very up for just seeing how things went and um i think i just had so much energy at that point and i mean i i still feel like that i still get up in the morning i just i just there's so much energy i have that i just feel i need to put it into something and um we were like, oh, I don't really know what's going on or what we're going to do or how this is going to work. Um, and so at that time, um, I thought, I'm going to start a company. And in the UK, it's actually incredibly easy to start a company. So we have a really great system for this. You can you can go to, a, you can start a limited company in about 15 minutes by clicking a few buttons. It's terrifying. You can just click through and get through. I know in Germany, it's a very different thing and different places around the world, it can be really challenging. With the UK, you literally just go on company's house, you can fill it in and do it. And so I started a company. Um, I started what was called Oshietai Limited, uh, was a, and it was a street food business. Actually, it was where I started. We, me and my wife, I know it's a bit of a sidetrack, but me and my wife, we had a, we were gonna do. The idea was that we were gonna do a street food thing where we got the ingredients on the Friday, we sold it on the Saturday, and we had the cash in the bank on Sunday that we could go and like live off of. That was the that was a concept behind it. So we were doing that. Um, we were doing basically okonomiyaki and like Japanese food. It was something that I kind of, I was super passionate about kind of trying to do something fun. And we were doing those things. Um, so that was sort of the idea of the concept about how to make some money. And then we were going to try to live off of that um, and go through. At that time, I pretty much sold all everything I owned anyway. Like we had no furniture. I had six boxes, which was in a garage in my wife's parents' house. Um, we're looking for somewhere to live and, you know, um, my, Becky's mum and dad were really great. And they said they didn't mind us coming to, you know, stay with those guys. So, um, that I wasn't paying any rent, you know, I'm really lucky with that. That was a really amazing thing. And, um, the idea was it was supposed to be a couple of months and we just see what happens and then, you know, kind of move on and get our stuff together and, and figure that out. So my, my bills and outgoings are about £100 a month at that point in my life. So financial stuff is, is, is really important. And I was I was ready for the financial strain. What I was not ready for was the mental strain. I'd gone from working in a room with 800 engineers to being just myself. I'm, a, I'm quite a people person. I'm quite involved in that. The mental strain was significantly harder than anything I thought it was going to be. Um, so... I think I'm really lucky to have the support network. My, my wife, we've been together since I was 14. She knows me better than I know myself in most ways. Um, so we we were a little team, you know, we we're a little duo. Um, I'm a sole founder of the business, which is hard. It's really hard. Um, I basically did most things the hardest way possible. And it was not through intent. It was just the fact that I didn't know what I was doing at all. Um, I just started at that time. I was just phoning people up, trying to look at, what they were doing and figure out if if I could go along and help them. I've phoned a couple of people up and I was like, try to 
try to work for other people. I was not interested in starting my own business. Um, and I just found that the more I spoke to people that were in the impact space, most of the people were either grant funded or they were pretty happy with a tiny little business and being like, this is exactly, you know, I've got my little thing and it's going okay. And I don't really want to grow. And, you know, there's two or three bit of us and we're doing all right. There was nobody really out there going, we're going to change the bloody world and we're going to get on and do that. And the only person I really kind of was looking at at that time was just about as Ocean Plastic was really kicking off was um, the Ocean Cleanup Project with Boy and Slat. And I sent him a few emails. I tried to, I tried to get in there in the Netherlands and I, it didn't work. I, you know, I didn't get any responses. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to, I'm going to just have to start something. Um, so it was really, um, it was, it was very organic. It was not planned in any stretch of the imagination. Um, and looking back, it makes loads of sense of exactly what I did. But, um, you know, I learned a lot of the business side through Oshiata, through the, through the street food business. Um, I learned, you know, we would we'd go one day, we'd come out, we'd sell 250 covers in a day, in, in, in like a two-hour slot at lunchtime, and we'd make a couple of grand. And then the next day, we would make a loss like a huge loss and it was so weather dependent i mean in the uk street food is just like if it's raining nobody comes out and you could be sitting there with like 200 300 portions of food um luckily becky's mum and dad have got chickens who love uh who love noodles um it was okay we kind of made it happen but you know um at one point we were doing 3000 eggs a week 800 kilos of cabbage it was it was not what i planned um there was a there was a little moment when um with the street food business we were my, me and becky were doing sony sony uh sony is the company doing their 25th birthday um so we had this massive party that we were organizing for hundreds of people and um we had eight staff or like we'd like close to like with you know people helping out and doing all these things and um I had to get on a plane to represent the UK for research and development at a G7. And I was like, I'm sorry, I've got to go. And and we were like, what are we doing shredding cabbage when we're both super talented? And, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was fun. But um, yeah, there was a lot happening in my life at that period of time. Um, I don't know if that kind of helps Tim um, share a little <laughs> insights. No, thanks, mate. Thanks for opening up. And, Okay, so we've learned about your your hustle with the food truck. We going back, we discovered that you've done a bit of a prototype for your your filter. So take us forward, I suppose, to when things when the rubber really started to hit the road, so to speak, and and you started building the team and and taking the business to the next level. Um, maybe this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit more about the business, what you're doing currently, what you've been doing in the past, and what you hope to be doing in the future. Yeah. Um, so I suppose there's two major steps. So one of it was like, there was a point where we were like, right, okay, we can't do the street food business anymore. Like we physically can't do it. My wife has got her own business too. You know, she does graphic design uh, and I've, I, I started doing engineering consultancy at that time. And the real big traction piece for us, I suppose, for me in particular, for um, so I applied for an Innovate UK grant. Um, we um, That was a pretty significant tr- chunk um, moving us forward into that. Um, so it was a couple of hundred thousand pounds um, that we applied for. Um, and really the reason why that come about was because I won Young Innovator of the Year Award in the UK. So I won an award. Um, I got 5,000 pounds for that. I got some mentorship 
um, and um, also I got some PR coverage. And the PR was the biggest influence. I was on Sky News, and they put, you know, inventor wants to save the world kind of tagline, and we got a load of interest. Um, and basically, a washing machine manufacturer come up to us and said, like, yeah, we're interested in what you're doing. We want to work on a project. We would like to use a government system to do that. Let's work together. And, you know, um, I lost the first one, won the second one. We got the grant, and then we got a year-long project. And April the 1st, 2019, I, the project started, and I took on two employees. And that was a big thing for me. And we were effectively being paid through this Innovate program and the government grant. And, you know, it, it was – the guys knew that there was it was a high risk, but it was a year-long project. It was enough capital to run for a little while. And, um, yeah, that period of time, I had that. Then I had – our first VC sort of approached us and said, this is really exciting. We'd love to be part of this. Let's be part of that. That happened and everything just started spiraling really. And we went from from zero to sort of 10 people within a year. So that happened really super quick. Um, from that now, I think we're probably around 20 people, 25 people, depending, you know, if you include contractors or what day of the week it is. Um, we're um we're getting to that stage as a business. Um, so Matter looks at four major sections as a company. So we have Gulp, which is our um, D2C side of the business. So it specialises in um, it's the we're developing products which are going to help people. Um, we know the climate crisis is coming. We understand that things are going to change for people. It's more we're going to need more resilience in our homes, um, and we're going to need products that have real impact. Gulp is our first product we're launching from this. So this is a retrofitable washing machine filter. If you go to gulp.online, you'll be able to pre-order one of these. Um, so we're currently selecting the manufacturing partners and going through that process of building supply chain. Um, and we're manufacturing this product ourselves through for a contract manufacturer. And it's a, a, a filter that plugs into your washing machine, plugs straight back in the back, and you can put this integrated into your home so if, um you know you want to put this below the sink or on top of the washing machine or or, or wherever or kind of the normal places that you put your washing machine this will this will extract the microplastic from the washing and uh, allows you to wash your clothes without having the impacts if you've got sports sports wear you're not going to have that impact um and things like pfas and other things that chemicals that are attached to the waterproofing those those particles, those fibers become trapped inside the filter and, and don't get out. Um, we are moving on to, we've got another part of the business where we're working with global washing machine manufacturers to install that technology we've developed inside the machines. So when you buy a new washing machine, it will come included with Matter technology, which we're super excited about that. Very busy. Um, and it's a licensing model, which is uh, B2B, very profitable. Um, and also, most importantly, it's really big impact. And then the two phases that we're currently growing into is the material side. Um, so one of the unique things about our filter is that um, rather than embedding all the material inside a trapped membrane where you then have to dispose of it, um, those um, those filters um, where it's embedded, our filter system is the material sits uh, separately. So we separate out the material from the um the rest of the um, the rest of the product, so you can extract it and then you can send it back to us. So um, we're working on the recycling schemes for how you turn that some of that material into a new value stream, which we think is really important to to truly close that loop. 
And then the, the final part of that is um, Matic Industries. So we're currently scaling up our technology. Um, I'm building a million liters of water a day version of my product um, in our labs. And that allows us to work with large textiles manufacturers or, or, or other segments. Um, there are lots of pollution sources and it allows us to work with those parts as well. Is the technology that you've created is it rocket science? Is it, is it that difficult? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. I suppose the the other side of that question is, does it annoy you that washing machine companies hadn't tackled this problem sooner? Because I'm sure they probably knew about it. Yeah. Um, so that's a really interesting point. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a fine line because obviously I run a business and you know it's good for us for business that we can develop something that's unique and that people can't do it with. Um, I think the there is this relationship with water currently that we think of it like it's a consumable, like you kind of use it and throw it away and discard it, and it's it's sort of like it's complete, you know, like that process is finished. Um, there's water on our planet that's been around since before the dinosaurs, you know. There's it's it's a crazy concept to think that our our water is so circular in in in, in the in the way that it normally is in, in the natural environment. And a lot of companies and pretty much most of the water space is regulatory. It's just driven by the law. And the law is so far away from from what happens in, in, in nature. Um, we are quite literally spending uh, the future <laughs> um, uh, abilities for this. It's, it's crazy. And uh, to give an example of this, in the UK, we have this law called PAS 110, where you can legally spray sewage sludge, which is the out of a wastewater treatment plant you can spray that onto fields you can legally put one plastic bag so of plastic per square meter onto that field that's onto directly onto the food and then that then would run off and, and, and goes into the river and the oceans so those kind of practices are are incredibly frustrating because it's it's hampering innovation you know because why would they innovate you know the, why would they do it they're like we're making loads of money like, why would we spend, um, so in the UK, it might be 20, 25 pound a ton to dispose of this. In Europe, it's 85 to 135 euros a ton because they have to incinerate it. It's, it's illegal to do that process because it's so full of pharmaceuticals and everything else. Um, it's also really uh, regional as well. So there's some, there's some huge challenges we face. And I think people often think that, you know, innovation and technology will save the world. Um, I mean, that is true if the adoption is there, and I think um, I think the adoption really is about there needs to be people making big decisions to do that. I mean, luckily, the reason why we're working so heavily in washing machine space is because there's law from 2025 you have to have a filter fitted in your um, your machine. It's also in Australia. Um, you guys are uh, cracking on ahead. You'll be pleased to know that you won't be able to buy a washing machine without a microplastic filter very soon. So, matter will be coming to a town near you. Um, we'll be coming and, and doing some good work in Australia. I'm looking forward to coming out and, and, and seeing you guys. I think there's there's um there is drive for this. We're seeing regulation sweep across the planet and but this is an assumption that the people who are in government are, you know, they're biological uh, you know, biologists and, and technologists and they're not. These guys are they're politicians and they don't understand this and a lot of our work is about educating these people and as soon as you provide the tools and help them that they want to move quickly and they want to do something positive. So um, I think it's it's 
it's down to all of us to act in the best way possible. And I think that um, regulation will drive a lot of the changes, because, but it's a, one of the slowest things to move. Um, but once it happens, it's, it's a massive effect. Uh, two kind of follow-on questions from that. That was really fascinating. Thank you. Um, one of them was around you know, how much of your time and energy and your team do you sort of have to then find yourself spending on lobbying and that education piece for policymakers. But a quick one was about the when those legislations are coming in and um, how have you gone about sort of protecting your IP and, and, and what does that mean? I mean, is it a is it a free market for these filtration systems to come into new washing machines or is there only a handful of players that are that are in the space? Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so the first part really um, about how much time we spend in legislation. So I am, um, when I was, I mean, it's not quite nice to talk about the beginning of the part of the matter because it kind of puts everything in context. So, I mean, I was sitting down with that blank sheet of paper going, okay, how do you solve these problems? And um, I all approached it from a cradle to cradle perspective. That's my that's my closest thing I have to a Bible. Um, it's the it's the principle of how you design systems. How do you design, like design is the first signal of human intention. I love this quote from Bill McDonoghue. And it's the concept of looking at like where, the, where this is and how this is working. And the thing that I really identified straight off very early was you three things. You need research and development, education and legislation. Education is fundamental to solving this problem. People need to understand it. These kind of things are absolutely critical. You know, what you guys are doing, educating people is incredibly important. That then leads on to public will and drive, and it wants to move into legislation space. And they always, the, the first thing they say is the technology is not there. How do we get the price down? We don't want to regulate something that, that hampers business and pushes that in place. And the research and development really is about developing those new technologies that are going to solve those problems and to do it at cost and at scale. So matters bread and butter is R&D. That's what keeps the lights on. That's what we do. But education and legislation for us, education is not about school kids. You know, those uh, we talk to seven-year-olds and they know more about it than we do. Um, they're they're amazing. They're incredible, the, the, the kids that are coming through. But when you're talking to policy people and, and the people that are involved in that, I think it's really super important that that education piece runs through. So we've been campaigning for about four years on the microplastic bill in the UK. Um, we've had second reading in the House of Parliament and House of Lords. I have our, a dedicated MP, um, Alberta Costa, who's working with us. We're working really hard on this. So um, we're then also part of the um, trade bodies um, that are around the world. Um, so I'm involved with all the washing machine manufacturers, but also all the trade bodies to set the standards as well. So it is, it's, it's a little bit of what we do, but I mean, it's all, we do that in the like, evenings and weekends, if you like, it's not. It's not um, it's not my nine to five, if you like. Um, so that's super. That's been a big part of what we do um, uh, from the legislation perspective. Um, and regarding the kind of like the, the space in the market, there are very few people in this space. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that is available are using disposables. A lot of the major filtration companies in the world Oh, you think about your car gets serviced and they replace the oil filters and things. Their their business model is to have a recurring revenue. So what they want is disposables because it means they get to sell more filters. Um, if you are going to solve pollution that way, you will create more pollution than you solve. Um, one of the competitors in the market, we see you throw away 186 grams of plastic to capture six grams of microplastic. 
is just if you went to 24 million washing machines in the uk it would fail like the system would completely fail so from a design perspective i think it's super important that um that we design things that are sustainable and scalable um i think that's that's a big part of what we do fascinating okay let's move on to the part of the podcast where we do talk about some of the key challenges and key achievements of your journey um they can be directly related to matter or you can talk about um in the context of your career but yeah tell us a little bit about some of your key achievements and key challenges yeah sure um i think what i mentioned earlier about like winning the young innovator of the year award was a real key achievement for me um that was a big that was a big difference um you know i saw a significant step in that way um for the business accelerators are incredible if you get them in the right way like we've we've got some i think we've been on five accelerators as a business you know some people say oh you know you should you should only do one or do it in this way but there are there are there are so many accelerators now i mean we got approached last week by polish accelerators and um, singapore accelerators uae if you want to break into a new market, there will be a country-based accelerator that will pay you money. They will set you up licenses. They will bring you along. So, um, and there's also accelerators, things like getting on the NASDAQ or you want to get on the AIMS or some of the stock markets. So they can be for growth companies as well as, um, and the way we see it is, um, is training. You know, we use it as training in the business now. So if I want to bring someone up in the company, those have been there have been really good little tips for us um, to use that and putting people through those programs. Um, challenges, I mean, we've had uh, we've had COVID, which was that was um, I was due to close a funding round um, the day before the UK government went into lockdown, and one of our investors, you know, they um, cut total company valuation pretty much. I mean, all the stock market would by forty percent. It was like twenty-two billion pound off a balance sheet in a in a day. Like we've had some challenges <laughs> um, surviving through. It's been it's been you know we are um, we're really I'm I'm just proud to still be here. Sometimes you know between COVID, Brexit, uh, Ukraine crisis, um, you know um, building a supply chain over the last couple of years has been challenging. Um, operating and running. Um, kudos to my team. They've just been just incredible and they've just believed you know fundamentally they are they've just given everything into this um i always find that often i don't know what i'm doing or that we don't know where to go or what to do um i'll just get a few guys around put some chairs out and just say look this is where i am this is what i'm trying to do what do you think and let them solve it because you know you often think that as a leader you have that responsibility to try to solve every problem and the reality is that the people that you hire are much smarter than you um and they they know exactly what to do so um it's always a good idea to kind of let those guys kind of kind of do that um so um yeah i mean some of those bits have been challenges um some achievements as well i mean you know when you um we had uh we have something called a love your lint campaign which we started as a bit of fun and um it was basically you could send back your tumble dry lint because um, everybody told us nobody was ever going to send back the microplastics from the filtration systems. And we were like, well, but they will. <laughs> so we set this scheme up and we've just been inundated with material and it's been amazing. So um, um, people have been sending us letters saying about how passionate they are about what we're doing and 
we got um we got three thousand signups over Christmas, and we we didn't even know about it. We got put in up in a in a news um uh, the Guardian newsletter um Guardian newspaper. They put us in a in the in the paper, and we just ended up getting emails just consistently coming through. We didn't even know it was going to happen. So there's been some massive highs, um, and also with that as well, there's there's been some super big challenges. It's um. 24 hours in matters pretty much like a week anywhere else um i think it's it's pretty fair to say it's um obviously so incredible to imagine that in the not too distant future such vast quantities of microfiber pollution are going to be captured at the source and that's better for our planet and for our waterways our environment our ocean um, what are some of the ways that you're looking to get creative with the material? Um, it's obviously a bit of a blank canvas, right? You've got a material like lint um, and fibres. Like, What are some of the fun ways you, you hope to be able to repurpose and recycle it? Yeah. Um, so, again, looking at the numbers, you've got to focus on that. So, for us, uh, lowest carbon relationship between going from that fibre to, to the next the next product life Um We've looked at it. we've got an insulation material which is working really well um we're really excited about that it could be a really good replacement to some of the things that is going on um it's very low carbon intensive um thing um and the volume of material that's currently going down the drain is just terrifying um so it's it's it's, it's a really great resource um for a resource stripped planet um so that would be really good for me i think the long-term vision for it is you know full circularity and that is I know beyond ambitious, but I figure if you can do it with microplastic, you can do it with all plastics and you can do it with all, th- all materials, you know, it's understanding separation between those organic pieces of material and the, you know, the technical pieces of material. Um, how do you separate that out and what does it look like? So there's some IP that we're looking to generate in that space um, and hopefully make a real big impact. I think materials is going to be a very big future for matter, but um, you've got to do your first things first, right? So, um, yeah, watch this space on that one, I think. Yeah, we'll wrap up the podcast pretty soon. But, you know, on the industries piece, I was interested to see on your website. And your website's fantastic for people to go and look and see all the different areas and, and updates and things. But um, around tyre dust and, and micro and nanoplastic particles from from tyres, which um, yeah, I don't know what the current science is saying, but it, it's probably up there uh, with textile fibres. We, we had actually another podcast recently with... Declan McAdams from Panovo, and his big claim is that paint might be the biggest source of microplastics. There's, there's probably a bit of a race at the moment between textile fibres, tyre dust, and and paint particles. But um, yeah, can you tell us anything about what you're doing in the in the world of tyres? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think um, a lot of these numbers, by the way, for, for for how they position is really about how many number of particles versus the weight. If you look at the heaviest microplastics they're going to be car tires if you look at the number of microplastic it'd be fibers or you know if it's fractional pieces it's paint i mean paint's normally in the nano scale but so there's 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 huge there i mean whatever it is it's bad news i mean fundamentally i mean uh, for us we don't really see a competition with this it's it's just a case the more people that can be in this space the better so um i'd love to be um i'd love to be surrounded by other people and and, and to be fair it is coming there is there is people really really taking big chunks of that supply chain, um, which is, is is amazing. But from a car tire perspective, um, for us, um, we started a project with the UK government where we started doing analysis of what was going on in in some of the drains locally, 
Um, so it depends on where you are in the regional parts, but you have combined sewers versus non-combined. And that effectively means if it's combined, it means you have the drainage from the roads and the sewage goes in the same pipe and then it goes to the wastewater treatment plant and is supposedly filtered um, to then remove some of those parts. Um, often in the UK, they breached their permits last year by 400,000 times. So they're consistently pumping that raw sewage and the pollution out um, into the rivers and the oceans. Um, in in most countries, um, we've got a Victorian system here. You know, it's the UK's got some pretty crazy heritage for for we probably invented a lot of the sewage systems around the planet. And um, a lot of the new places will have non-combined, which is basically means that the um, the road stuff goes straight out. So if you have a car um, and you are buying a new car tire every three years, where does that rubber go? Um, you know, and that fragments of those plastics are in the region about 0.3 microns, that kind of size. So that's small enough that you could breathe that in. It would go through your lungs and straight into your blood. There'd be no filtration for your lungs wouldn't be able to deal with that. Um, and that is a lot of the black you get up your nose. And when you go into a city, that black is carbon black. That's air pollution and car tires are the same. It's, it's related. related. So um, there's a huge opportunity here to, to do it. There's some great companies, the Tire Collective are doing some good stuff. And a lot of the tire manufacturers are saying they've got CSR schemes, so they're doing some bits. But really with electrification, that tire pollution is going to increase um, because the, the torque is higher on electric cars. Um, so I think it's going to be, um, it's a really challenging space and it requires some very different thinking. Um, I mean, fundamentally, the way the tyres work is they're, they're a traction driven by friction and friction creates particles. So um, you can't get away from that, um, but you you can reduce some of it. Um, and then you need to really design out the problem. So it's always, you know, they need to change the material that they use, not these horrible compounds of material. Um, and then you need to kind of move towards um, having much cleaner water coming off the back of um, of our, our, our road networks. Talk about some opportunity areas for budding young entrepreneurs out there. Um, speaking of those budding young entrepreneurs, just a moment for you, I guess, to share. You have already throughout the podcast, which we thank you for, but one or two key bits of advice or, or learnings that you think is going to help people on their ocean impact journey. Sure. Um, I think um, fundamentally, like it's it's really important to kind of like understand um, that often you're the biggest limitation in in what what you can achieve. Um, I think we often I think it's really important to understand exactly when you come to a hurdle, when you come to one of these really difficult crossroads, what is it that you're um, what is it's really stopping you from doing that? Um, I think also balance is very important. I think, you know, anybody who's driven to be able to do this is, you know, often, I mean, I, I work 80 hours a week, most weeks. Um, it's hard to have a decent work-life balance um, when you're kind of, when you're working that way. So support network is incredibly important. Um, I remember when I was 
I've gone from earning a very good salary, a, a, a very good job to earning less than hundred pound a month for a long time. Um, that is, that is a, that is difficult. Um, you need people that, um, you need people around you that, that, um, and I remember having conversations with people, um, who I really care about, who are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, um, really, really trying to get me to change. They're like, go and do a good job and, you know, parents and, and support like that. That is, um, when you hear those things, it's very difficult to kind of pick yourself up. So it's important to surround yourself by the right, right person. And then my last thing really is just sort of, you know, don't ever ask anybody to do anything for you because they probably won't. But if you ask them who they know, they'll always be able to tell you exactly what, what um, who they know that can help you. Everyone's very, very suggestive of, of all the people that they know that can help you. But if you ask them to do it, you'll get less, less of a response. So just, um, you know, sometimes they volunteer themselves, but I always find the best thing to do is ask, ask people that I know, do you know anyone who can, who can help me with this problem? Um, and then often you, you get connections really quickly versus, um, if you say, I really need you to do this thing, they're like, you know, they don't have time or they won't get back to you. Um, so that's my experience at least, um, maybe a little secret tip. Great tips, mate. Thank you. So wrapping up the, the podcast now, I've got just one last bit about the road ahead. So what do you got planned over the next 12 to 24 months? Um, a chance to talk about anything you wanted to talk about today but haven't yet. And obviously the last bit is where people can follow you and support you and pre-order products, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, cool. Well, thanks so much. I mean, I think 12 or 24 months is a very long time in our in our world. Um I'm um, I'm looking to basically we're, we're currently raising um, I'm raising a 10 million dollar round um, that's uh, USD um, for Series A um, so we're raising that at the minute that's a big chunk and that's really going to help us grow in in in, in what we do um, we've got um, we've got some of that committed already and we're moving through so that's happening right now um, which is big and if that happens then that how well when that happens we will be we'll be really driving a lot of these different parts of our business forward very quickly. Um, we are hiring, so if um, you're looking for uh, you're looking for a new thing, um, you want to come work in sunny Bristol, um, do let us know. Um, we are we're looking for good engineers. Um, I'm currently looking for C-suite levels of people as well. So um, if you're if you're interested, then then please do get in touch. Um, and then I think go to gulp.online. Um, I definitely recommend to check out that and see if that product. Uh, works for you and give us some feedback as well you know um you know follow us on i think we've got instagram i'm not very social media friendly but we definitely have instagram and i think we've got a tiktok uh i'm on linkedin um come say hey um uh you know come follow some of the work that we're doing um and 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 yeah really i think you know fundamentally you know be your own little position of campaigning you know go and Go and go and find out how you can how you can make some change. Send a, if you send a letter to your local uh, MP, Minister of Parliament, it will it will be a very big thing because um, they they work for you. Never forget that um, they don't work for themselves. They work for you. So if you send them a letter, they are legally if you're in their constituents, they're legally um, they have to respond. So um, ask them the awkward questions: why they're not doing more? Ask them why they're not doing it. Um, and that will, um, I, I've, um, I did that the first time I did that, I managed to get, um, I got invited to the house of commons, um, to explain what I was doing. <laughs> so don't ever give up. Fantastic. I really have enjoyed this, uh, podcast episode and thank you so much for, for opening up and taking us on the journey. Keep up the great work. We know you will. Thanks so much. Can't take the
shit out of me.